Well, um, I don't know if uh, if you guys remember, but a while back I was asked to do an equipping hour, and uh, they left the topic up to me, and so I <laughs> dangerously chose to do a, a lesson on the sovereignty of God, and particularly focusing on two aspects of the will of God. Um, so what I want to do is, is just kind of tell you kind of how this is going to go, um, and then I'll pray, and we'll we'll jump in. So um, I'm going to be giving a little bit of recap, uh, just so we kind of know where we're at, where we're starting. Uh, and then uh, after I pray, I'll be giving us a couple of things from um, one psalm, a couple of things from Job, kind of set the flavor. Okay, um, But first, let's, let's pray and ask that God would bless this time and, and open ears and use me. Father God, I want to thank you um, for your precious word, God, that you've revealed yourself to us. I want to thank you that you are faithful, that you are holy. God, I ask that you would give us the strength. God, grant that we be faithful in response. God, I ask that you would use this time that you've given us to edify us. And most of all, God, that you would glorify yourself. Help us to know that we can trust you, that we can rest in you, God. God, we ask that you would take this time, use it for your purposes, get me out of the way. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Okay, so, two aspects of the will of God we talked about last time. Um, And uh, those two aspects are like two sides of a coin. They're both the will of God, but one is finite, an aspect that we actually have to engage with every day. And then the other is infinite, something that we don't always understand. We're not going to see every facet of the will of God. We can't. He's infinite. We're finite. He's far too grand for us to understand. And so on the one side, we have God's laws, his precepts, what he's told us to do. This is your department. You focus on what I've asked of you. On the other side, you have what God sovereignly decrees will come to pass. And in the midst of that, is moments when we obey him, but there's also moments when we don't. There's moments when God uses even sin for his purposes. And we looked at that very clearly in a couple of places in Genesis. We saw that from Pharaoh, who hardened his own heart, but it also says that God hardened his heart. So you have both sides of it. Yes, Pharaoh is hardening his heart. He is sinning, but... God is also hardening his heart. Is it unjust? No, because Pharaoh is an enemy of God. He is hardening his own heart of his own volition. But in the decree of God of what will come to pass, his story, history is written by the decrees of God that this will take place for my purposes so that my will be done ultimately to glorify myself. That's the stance that God takes. He's on a higher playing field as we talked about last time. Okay. Our playing field is flip side of that coin, this is what I told you to do, right? And then we also looked at it from Joseph, uh, where he says to his brothers, you meant this evil, okay, to hurt, you meant it for evil, and God meant it for good. Not that he turned it, 
He didn't turn it for good. He meant it. Right? So, that's what we talked about last time. I hope that, uh, that that'll kind of catch us up if, if you weren't here or if, um, if you don't remember. Because it's been a very long time. I think that was November. Yeah. It's fresh on my mind, but I, I, it's not fresh on yours. Uh, so, Psalm, uh, you don't have to turn here. I'm just going to read uh, a few things just to set the flavor. Psalm 115, 2 and 3 says, Why should the Gentiles say, So where is their God? But our God is in the heavens. He does whatever he pleases. And Job 36, verse 23 says, Who has assigned him his way? Or who has said, You have done wrong? Similarly, we see in, in uh, Romans, Paul's asking the question, Who are you, O man, to talk back to God? And then, the story of Job, I, I wish I could just go over this book and exposit it. But I wish there was somebody in the church who preached regularly, who could, you know, go through a book. Hint, hint. <laughs> Uh, Job chapter 1, verse 6 through 12, and then uh, we'll jump down and, and uh, go to twenty twenty two Again, you don't have to turn there if you want to. Um, you can, but I'm just going to jump in. Now there was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan also came among them. And the Lord said to Satan, From where do you come? So Satan answered the Lord and said, From going to and fro on the earth, and from walking back and forth on it. And the Lord said to Satan, Have you considered my servant Job? That there is none like him on the earth, a blameless and an upright man, one who fears God and shuns evil. So Satan answered the Lord and said, Does Job fear God for nothing? Have you not made a hedge around him and around his household and around all that he has on every side? You have blessed the work of his hands, and his possessions have increased in the land. But now, stretch out. Your hand, God, stretch out your hand, God, and touch all that he has. Possessions, sorry, all that he has, and he will surely curse you to your face. And the Lord said to Satan, behold, all that he has is in your power. Only do not lay a hand on his person. So Satan went out from the presence of the Lord. Satan tells God, stretch out your hand. And take what he has. The only reason that he, that he loves you, the only reason that he is an upright, righteous man is because you give him all the stuff. Right? It's prosperity gospel, is it not? If you follow me, then I will bless you. Interesting that that would come from the same place. Stretch out your hand to touch all that he has. And then God says to Satan, Behold, all that he has is in your power. Does he switch it and say... I'm not going to do it. I don't, I don't want to use my hand. Um, Satan, you, you mess with him. No. Because Satan has to ask God for permission to do everything that he does. And so it's, it's not that Satan is an enemy of God. Satan is not God's enemy. He's the enemy of the church. He's the accuser of the brethren. He's God's dog on a leash. And sometimes God uses his dog as an attack dog to put pressure on those that he loves to train them. That they would be able to withstand this world, that they would be able to fight, that he would bring to the surface that dross that he could scrape it off. 
He squeezes you like a sponge. And all the filth comes out and he removes it. That's sanctification. So he's sanctifying Job, sovereignly allowing evil to take place. So Job loses everything. All of his possessions, all of his servants, all of his kids. And then Job arose. This is in verse 20. Job arose, tore his robe, and shaved his head, and he fell on the ground and worshipped. And he said, Naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked shall I return there. The Lord gave, and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. And in all this, Job did not sin nor charge God with wrong. So he lays the responsibility squarely at God's feet. You did this. But blessed be the name of the Lord. He doesn't attribute it to Satan. He attributes it to God. Then God, through, through the book, we have a lot of um, talking, a lot of what God calls words without knowledge, a darkening of understanding. And God questions Job and he asks him about the foundation of the earth. Where were you when I laid the foundation of the earth? Do you control storms? Can you raise your voice to a storm cloud? Do you know where hail and snow come from? Can you control constellations? Can you unchain constellations? Can you remove stars from their course? Did you put them there? Do you feed the birds? Can you hunt the prey for the lions? You handle none of these things, right? He he asks them about controlling a dinosaur. And ultimately, the question that he's asking Job is, what do you know? You know nothing. You don't know what I'm doing. You don't know what I'm orchestrating. God has a million things that he's orchestrating in this world just on your behalf. Just little tidbits, little pieces that you don't understand. And sometimes he lets you get a glimpse of it and sometimes he doesn't. And sometimes it hurts and sometimes it lifts you up and he blesses you. What we need to see is that it's a blessing either way. Romans 8:28. all things work together for good. Them that love God are called according to his purpose. All things, the good, the bad, the ugly. Everything. And then at the end of the book, in uh, Job 42, 1 1 through 6, Then Job answered the Lord and said, I know that you can do everything and that no purpose of yours can be withheld from you. You asked, who is this who hides counsel without knowledge? Therefore I have uttered what I did not understand, things too wonderful for me, which I did not know. Listen, please, and let me speak. You said, I will question you and you shall answer me. I have heard of you by the hearing of the ear, but now my eye sees you. Therefore, I abhor myself and repent in dust and ashes. Similarly, we see a similar response from Isaiah when he sees God on his throne. I've seen the Lord. I am undone, unraveling. Just kill me. 
Just kill me. I've seen God. I'm unrighteous. I'm a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips. I can't take it anymore. I'm coming undone. And Job says, I abhor myself, repent, and sit in dust and ashes. You know nothing. Who are you, O man, who talks back to God, who questions the Almighty? Two sides of his will, you have what he's revealed to us, which is his precepts, what he tells us to do, and then what he sovereignly decrees is the other side of that coin. His decretive will, his hidden will, also his permissive will, what he permits to take place. So that's, uh, that's our introduction. <laughs> um, what I want you to do is go ahead and turn to Acts 4. We're going to start in verse 23. We're going to go down through verse 31. I'm going to work through that, and then there'll be a lot of um, questions. I'll be hopping around a couple of different places. But that's what we're going to focus on. And so while you're getting there, I'm going to kind of try to set the background here. Peter and John... Uh, a couple chapters prior, they healed the lame beggar um, at the gate. So that's, that's the one where uh, Peter says, Silver or gold have I not, but what I have I give you. In the name of Jesus Christ, get up and walk. And then after they heal him, they're preaching the resurrection. And so they get arrested. They get arrested, they're questioned, and they're, they're told... Basically, stop preaching. Do not speak anymore in the name of Jesus. And so picking up in verse 23, says, And being let go from their imprisonment, they, Peter and John, went to their own companions, that's the church, and reported all that the chief priests and elders had said to them, which is, do not speak in the name of Jesus They also question them, though. They say, by what authority did you do this? By whose name or what authority did you do this? The healing of the the lame beggar. And Peter responds, Jesus of Nazareth, the stone that you, the builders, rejected. Who has become the chief cornerstone? And he's, he's quoting there from Psalm 118. He also says at the end of that, something we're probably familiar with, no other name is given under heaven among men by which we must be saved. So, whose authority? Jesus of Nazareth. The stone that you, the builders, rejected. He's become the chief cornerstone. Everything hangs on him. Everything starts from there. The chief cornerstone, the main foundation and there's no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved and then in verse 24 we see a high view of God I'll just read it and then we'll go back through and so so when they heard that they raised their voice to God with one accord and said Lord you are God who made heaven and earth and the sea and all that is in them This is a prayer. When they, the church, the companions of Peter and John, heard what the high priest had said to Peter and John, the exchange that took place when they heard that, 
They prayed. They raised their voice to God with one accord or in agreement as to the purpose of why they're praying and also in agreement as to the meaning of what they're saying. They agree on their high view of God. Who is God? Who are we praying to? Why are we, why are we praying it? So again, when they heard that, they raised their voice to God with one accord and said, Lord, you are God who made heaven and earth and the sea and all that is in them. You made it. You're the author that gives you authority. Authorship grants authority. We would say sovereignty. If you have an ESV, it'll say, Sovereign Lord, you are God who made heaven and earth and the sea and all that is in them. Sovereignty. Authorship. He authored it. He made it. It's his to do with as he pleases. So he has authority over it. So you, God, by the mouth of your servant David, says who by the mouth of your servant David have said, why did the nations rage and the people plot vain things? The kings of the earth took their stand and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against his anointed, his Christ. So they're quoting there in their prayer, they're, they're quoting from Psalm 2. Say, you spoke this God through David, through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. You spoke these words asking the question, why did the nations or the Gentiles rage and the people, Israel, the people of Israel, plot vain things, vanity, right? The kings of the earth, kings, Herod, kings of the earth took their stand and the rulers, Pilate, were gathered together. Kings and rulers gathered together, taking a stand against the Lord and against his anointed. Gathered together, they gathered together to do a trial that never should have happened, that was illegal even by their own laws, under their own understanding, their own terms. That trial should have never taken place, especially in the manner that it did. The arrest should have never happened in the manner that it did. But they took their stand. Soldiers arrested Christ set up a trial, a mockery of a trial, convicted him, even though Pilate said, I find no fault. I see no fault in this man. But do what you will. I wash my hands of it. As if that removes him from responsibility or guilt. The kings of the earth took their stand and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against his anointed, against his Christ. Against the Lord is sin. Anything that is against God is sin. It goes against his precepts, his laws. If you are against God, simple sin. Here's here's where it gets tricky, though. They, They go from quoting Psalm 2... And then they tell you what it means. And they very clearly say, talking about Jesus, right? Because remember, this is a, this is a, a psalm that they're, that they're quoting that um, prophesies what would happen. We're seeing it in hindsight. They're seeing it in very, very close hindsight. In verse 27, they break from the psalm to say that it's fulfilled. For truly against your holy servant, Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, kings and rulers, 
with the Gentiles or the nations and the people of Israel were gathered together. Verse 28, to do whatever your hand and your purpose determined before to be done. So this has been fulfilled, Psalm 2, in the crucifixion. To do whatever your hand, to do, to sin, to sin whatever God, your hand, and God, your purpose, have determined or predestined or foreordained to be done. People ask the question, why do bad things happen to good people? And it would be a fair question if there were good people. The problem is, Romans, book of Romans tells us that no one is good. No one does good. No one seeks for God. No one is righteous. No, not one. Not a single person is good. So, it's the wrong question. Why do good things happen to bad people? Why do you have taste buds? Why did the sun rise this morning? It didn't have to. And outside of a sovereign God who controls all things, you don't know that it will. And so, verse 28 is clearly telling us that God foreordained sin to take place. In fact, the worst sin ever to happen, the worst sin ever perpetrated in the history of history, God says, I ordained it by my hand for my purpose beforehand from the beginning of time before that, in fact. From before time, he knew what was going to take place. He didn't just know it. He decided what was going to take place. The worst sin ever to happen, but what we sometimes fail to recognize is it's, it wasn't a tragedy. It was a victory. He says in, uh, <laughs> he says in Psalm 2, after the, the kings and rulers set themselves against the Lord. They say, let us break their bonds and cast away their cords from us. But the Lord will laugh and hold them in derision, mockery. They wanted to break the chains, if you will, of God, the the control of God over them. The first temptation, you'll be like God. You don't have to listen to him. You'll get to decide what is evil. You'll get to decide what is good for yourself. Not a tragedy. Holds them in mockery. Right? They're quoting Psalm 2 saying that them breaking the bonds and casting away the cords of God from them is fulfilled in the crucifixion. That's what they were attempting to do, whether they knew it or not, whether the people of Israel knew or not. 
or the Roman soldiers knew or not. It was an attempt to say, you don't have control over us. We'll be our own people. We'll make a name for ourselves. In, uh, in Acts 2, a couple chapters back, in verse 22 and 23, Peter says something very similar on the day of Pentecost. You can turn there, I'll give you a moment. The day of Pentecost, they're filled with the Holy Spirit, they begin to preach, and everyone's hearing it in their own language. Tongues, their own languages. They're hearing the mighty works of God and... In verse 22, Peter says, Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested by God to you by miracles, wonders, and signs, which God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves also know. Him being delivered by the determined purpose or reason and foreknowledge of God, you have taken by lawless hands, sinful hands, have crucified and put to death. You murdered him. So was it really murder? We'll have to ask that question. We'll get into that in a moment. Whom God raised up, having loosed the pains of death, because it was not possible that he should be held by it. So was the crucifixion really... uh, Was it murder or was it a sacrifice that... God laid down his life willingly. If God is not sovereign, then it's murder and it's left there, and it is nothing more than that. And it wasn't a willing sacrifice. And we have a big problem if Christ did not give up his own life. So, was the death of Christ predetermined by God or is God playing our script? So without God, without his sovereignty, without him being in total control, we're left to vain hope with uncertain outcomes, void of a reason, void of a purpose. He asks, Joe, what do you know? You You don't know anything. You know nothing. He's orchestrating everything that takes place little bits and pieces in your life. When tragedy hits, remember, this is the worst thing that's ever taken place. This is the worst evil that's ever taken place. We face evil every day. If God ordained this, did he not ordain tragedy in your life? Did he not ordain the car accident or the sickness of a loved one, a child maybe? Maybe dad left. Maybe brother died. Same thing with Job. Evil happened in Job's life. It was evil that everything was taken away from him. Right? But Job attributes it to God. So God allows these things to take place. And without his sovereignty, when we pray to him, we're either praying to a God who doesn't have the power to stop it, doesn't have the power to change that, or 
He's just unwilling. Doesn't want to or can't. And has no purpose in it. If God does not have a reason for the evil that takes place, you have no hope. Why are you praying to him? Why do you pray in, in tragedy? Why do you pray when everything goes wrong? To be in a universe full of suffering for which God has either no power to change or no reason for allowing, no purpose, no meaning. It's hopelessness. So it raises the question, Paul, <laughs> uh, what is hope then? Where do you have hope? If you don't have hope, if you're praying to a God who you believe wouldn't allow evil to happen, especially to, his, to accomplish his purpose, where does your hope come from? See, we've, we've rewritten God's character. We think we have the script. We think we can, we can kind of decide how things work. I don't have to read the Bible. I'll figure it out. And I definitely don't have to read the parts that I disagree with. So we rewrite God's character in our script. He merely reacts to evil. God turns it for good. He'll take all the bad things that we do. He'll take all the evil things that, that take place in this world. The broken down world that we live in. The second law of thermodynamics that says that everything is breaking down. The mudslides that happen. The floods that happen. The fires in California. The coronavirus. The black death. In Europe, I'll turn it for good somehow. The problem is, even if God knows the outcome in that, he's not deciding it if he's not sovereign. He's playing to your script. It's the same thing as a, as a father who, he knows what's going to happen. And determined it. But he knows. He has foreknowledge. He takes a blindfold and he takes a clock and he hands it to his toddler and he says, here, put this blindfold on, wind the clock, and then when the toddler happens blindfolded to get the time right, he stands back and he says, <laughs> I did that. No, you didn't. You had no control over it. You had no reason in it. You're playing to this toddler script and pretending like you're sovereign. And we want to worship a God like that and say that that's how the universe takes place. That's how everything works. And we somehow think we have hope. You pray to this God. God, would you take away the sickness from my child so he doesn't die? Or God, help me understand why this tragedy happened. Why did I lose this person in my life? Why do I have cancer? But you believe in a God that doesn't have control over it or won't have a purpose in it? Guys, that, that's worse than deism. Deism is God set up the universe and he wound it up and he lets it go. And he just lets everything kind of take place. That's worse. You're saying God is involved apathetically. It's apathetic involvement. Deism is no involvement. It's apathy without involvement. You're saying he's involved, but doesn't care. 
or isn't powerful enough. But if he has all power, if he is omnipotent, then he has to be in control. And it would make sense that he knows the outcome if he decided it. And so what, what is your hope in? And ultimately, if you don't believe in a God that grants hope by his sovereign will, you can't believe in the crucifixion. You have no faith to stand on because you don't believe that Jesus died to save you. You believe it was murder, an accident. So, do we know that it wasn't an accident? Do we actually know that God foreordained these things to take place for our good? That all things would work together for our good? We know that that's true. We know that God foreordains things. We know that the crucifixion has been a plan from the start. Genesis 3. Everybody's familiar with Genesis 3. The seed will crush the head of the serpent, but he'll be bruised. Christ died on the cross. He was bruised, but he defeated death. Crushed the head of the serpent. We're familiar with that one. One that we may not be as familiar with, um, but really spells it out, is in the genealogy in Genesis 5. One of the things with the English translations is that we don't get meanings of names. We get a, an English approximation of what that name would, would be like if we were to pronounce it with English characters. And so uh, we get what we call transliteration. It's not translated, it's transliterated. We just have a spelling for it so that we can pronounce it similar. So that, that genealogy is... Adam, this is Adam to Noah, Adam, Seth, Enosh, Kenan, Mahalalel, Yared, Enoch, Methuselah, Lamech, and Noah. We go, okay, they're just names, right? Um, Isaiah is just a name, except that it has a meaning, right? And now some, some cultures, they, they don't remember what their names mean. Nowadays, we give a lot of names that don't have meaning, but in the Hebrew culture, every name had a meaning. For example, Isaiah means... The Lord is my salvation. Adam or Adam means man. Seth, Adam's, Adam's son, Seth, means appointed. So Eve said, I'll name him Seth because God has appointed me a new son in, in replacement of, of Abel. So Seth means appointed. Enosh means mortal. Kenan means sorrow comes from a, a root that means like a funeral dirge, right? Um, it can mean sorrow. Mahalalel, it's a mouthful. It's kind of weird to pronounce. But it means the blessed God, Mahalalel. Yared, we would say Jared. Yared is, it means shall come down or descending, to descend, shall come down. Enoch is kind of a strange term. It, it can mean commencement. Um, it can mean this idea of teaching, so commencing teaching or teaching. Methuselah. Methuselah was the oldest man ever to live, 969 years, the longest recorded life. Interestingly enough, his life was actually a prophecy of when the flood would come. Methuselah means his death shall bring. 
So when he died, that was the year of the flood. When the flood came, that's when Methuselah died. So his death shall bring the flood. That's what it meant in their context. Lamech, we, we have the same meaning in, in English today, to lament. Uh, so despairing. Lamentation, Lamech means despairing. And then Noah. Um, Noah is, it can mean comfort or it can mean rest. So in the, in the English, some of you have caught on already. Some of you might already know this. In the English, we have the, the genealogy is Adam, Seth, Enosh, Kenan, Mahalalel, Yared, Enoch, Methuselah, Lamech, and Noah. But I'm going to read it into Hebrew and I'm going to interject some, some, some words in there to, to make it into more of a, a sentence. Man is appointed mortal sorrow, but the blessed God shall come down teaching that his death shall bring the despairing comfort or rest. It wasn't an accident. It was planned from the beginning. And he gives, he gives every opportunity for us to see that. God knew what was going to happen. He decided what was going to happen. Man is appointed mortal sorrow, but the blessed God shall come down, teaching that his death, God's death, shall bring the despairing comfort or rest. So was the crucifixion murder? John ten eighteen. Jesus says, no one takes it from me, his life, he's talking, talking about his life. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of myself. I have power to lay it down and I have power to take it up again. This command I have received from my father. So did they murder him? Yes, it was an unjust trial. It should have never happened. It was an unjust killing. That's murder. But he wasn't murdered in the sense that they forced his life away from him. No one takes it from me. I lay it down myself. I have power to lay it down. And I have power to take it up again. Why? Because he wasn't paying for his own sin. He couldn't be held by death because he wasn't paying for his own sin. And he's infinite. The only reason that Christ can pay your sin debt is because he's infinite And the punishment has to be infinite because the offense is infinite. And we're finite. So you got nothing. Not only do you not know anything, as he tells Job, you have nothing to offer. You can't pay it because you're finite. God's infinite. And you've offended him. And you've broken the department that he said, this is where you stay. This is your realm. The law, this is what I've commanded you to do. Your section of it is what I've revealed to you. This is what I ask of you to do. And he knew that Adam and Eve would sin. And he knew that he would curse the world. He knew that there would be death. And it's from him. You sinned against God. And death is from God. Satan doesn't kill you. And he's not in charge of heaven when you get there. God kills you as a rebel against him and he's in charge when you get to hell. And I pray, God, we're not going there. I pray, God, we grasp this, that God would grant repentance, that we would see that the worst sin perpetrated ever in history, God meant for good. That we meant it for evil. 
we meant to kill our brother, to sell him into slavery, the same slavery that we experience, a slavery to sin, he took our place in that slavery and died the death that we deserve. We meant it for evil. God meant the taking of Christ's life by his brothers and the Gentiles for good. We see that correlation between Joseph and and Christ, and it's all through Genesis. He keeps telling us, I planned this, I planned this, I planned this. You cannot say that God did not plan evil. If you do, you're not a Christian because you don't have the cross. You don't have reconciliation with God because you don't have the necessary sacrifice that it took to get you reconciliation with God. You'll never get there. You can't get there. So was it murder? Yeah. But it was a sacrifice willingly laid down that he was able to take that sin debt. He was able to bear it because he's infinite. No one takes it from me. I lay it down. I have power to lay it down. And I have power to take it up again. Praise God. In the resurrection, he had the power to take it up again. Let's go back to Acts 4. This is the implication of the fact that God is sovereign over all things. What do we do with that? How do we respond? What does it mean? Indicatives and imperatives. It's indicated to us that God is sovereign. It is imperative that we respond in a particular fashion. And we see that in the prayer that they, that they prayed in response to what the, uh, the report was of what the, the council said to Peter and John. Do not speak in the name of Christ anymore. They wouldn't have called him Christ Jesus. Do not speak in the name of Jesus of Nazareth anymore. They roughed him up and they let him go. When they told them this, they prayed. And their prayer, I'm just going to read it from the top one more time and then we'll continue. So when they heard that, they raised their voice to God with one accord and said, Lord, you are God or sovereign Lord. You are God who made heaven and earth and the sea and all that is in them. Who by the mouth of your servant David said, why did the nations rage and the people plot vain things? Vanity. To murder God. It's vanity. You're crazy. Well, we still think that today. Friedrich Nietzsche said, God is dead and we have killed him. And then he said, what what vain religious games do we have to invent to make ourselves seem worthy of such a feat? Made all that is in them. Who, by the mouth of your servant David, has said, Why did the nations rage and the people plot vain things? The kings of the earth took their stand, and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against his Christ, his anointed. For truly, against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, with the Gentiles and the people of Israel, were gathered together to do whatever your hand and your purpose determined beforehand to be done. In verse 29, now, Lord, because, Lord, since, therefore, now, Lord, look on their threats and grant to your servants that with all boldness they may speak your word. 
by stretching out your hand or some translation will say while stretching out your hand or while you stretch out your hand to heal and that signs and wonders may be done through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. And when they had prayed, the place where they were assembled together was shaken and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and they spoke the word of God with boldness. So we'll go back through and we'll go over each of these. Now, Lord, since Lord, because because you are sovereign, because you orchestrate and control all things, we do have confidence. So what is our hope in? That God is sovereign. Our hope is in the fact that God is sovereign, that he has orchestrated all things, that when you pray, you pray with confidence or boldness, knowing that Romans 8.28 is in fact true. That all things do work together for good. The good, the bad, the ugly, the sin that you commit, the curse on this world, that everything breaks down, that tragedy happens. Now, Lord, look on their threats. They threatened Paul and or Peter and John, sorry. They threatened Peter and John. They roughed them up, they beat them up, and they said, Don't speak again. You saw what happened to Christ. Christ told you what was going to happen in your future, that each of the apostles were going to suffer a brutal death in the same manner that Christ died. You know what's coming. You know what's going to happen. And it's not good. It's not prosperity. It's not name it and claim it. It's not, this is what I have for you and it's good things. And let's quote verses from books that we don't understand because we haven't fully read them. And I have plans for you and they're to prosper you. And that might be true. But your prospering is not in this life necessarily. He may prosper you in this life. And I pray, God, that you praise him for that and that you use that to further the kingdom. But you're not going to get it because you work for it. You're not going to get it because you pay more to the church. You're not going to get it because you pray a little harder or have a little more faith. Faith is a gift. Grace is a gift. Faith is a gift. You don't get either of your own accord. You can't. So in response to the fact that God is sovereign, that God is in control, that he predestines, foreordains all things, because of that, grant to your servants that with all boldness, all boldness, all the boldness that we need to accomplish what we have to do, and all the boldness that you can possibly give me that I can contain, all boldness, with all boldness they may speak your word. Not their ideas, not their word. Not the verses that they like. That will speak your word, your truth. Which is the only truth. It's the only truth we've got, folks. You have nothing else. You don't have any other version of truth. You have what God has revealed, sure. And you don't always understand what God has hidden from you. It's hidden from you would make sense that it's hidden from you. If God told you everything that he was doing, you'd have the same response as Isaiah. I'm coming undone. I'm coming unraveled. Just kill me. I can't take it. I can't handle it. I don't think we'd want to know all of God's purposes. Some of them are pretty hard to handle. But his promise is that they will all work out in the end. They will all be for, for good So give us boldness on that. Confidence, faith. Boldness is the outworking of faith that God is sovereign. While he stretches out his hand to heal, 
to give attestation to their, their work. The healings that were taking place in Christ's time were to attest, to give clear understanding that, yes, he is from God. No one else can do these things. That was the response of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. Who else can do this stuff? That they still, they still took him in and they still took him into custody and tried him for nothing and then killed him for blasphemy that wasn't blasphemy because he spoke the truth. So while you stretch out your hand to heal and that signs and wonders may be done through the name of your holy servant Jesus to attest the work of the apostles, the position that they have. In Acts 22, Acts 2.22, Jesus was attested by signs and wonders. We read that earlier. Acts 14.3 is that the Lord bore witness to the world by granting signs and wonders. What are they there for? That we may have confidence to know that Jesus is the Christ. What does Luke, the writer of this book previously, what does he tell uh, uh, the guy he's writing to? Somebody help me out. Theophilus. There we go. <laughs> Lover of God. What does he tell Theophilus? I'm writing these things to you so that you may have some hope that they're true. I'm writing these things to you so that, you know, I just want to see your opinion on them and you, you can take it as whether or not you, I don't know. I mean, was he born of a virgin? Did he actually die on the cross? I'm writing these things to you so that you may have certainty so that you'll know that I'm in control, that I have the power, that I've granted these things to you, faith, repentance, Miraculously, repentance and faith. So while you stretch out your hand to attest to your word, to your power, that this is your plan through healing, through signs, through wonders. Jesus was asked of a, a, a blind man who was healed is this guy blind because his parents sinned or because he sinned? Jesus' response, um, neither. He was blind for this day that you would see the power of God when he's healed. That's why he was blind. Guys, it is the curse on this world that someone be born blind. That's not perfection. That's exactly what happened when God cursed the world. Because of the sin of Adam and Eve. Things break down. Things don't work. People get old. Some people don't see things. Some people don't hear things. Some people die in tragedies. But God allows those things. He permits those things to take place that we might see that he is in control. And that we might see the healing that takes place even in that. That while we were sinners, while we were living in a world that's broken of our own accord, by our own fault. Don't blame Adam and Eve. If you sin, it's on you. It's not on Adam and Eve. If you sin, it's on you. It started with Adam and Eve. The first Adam is in Adam and Eve. The position there, what you have, the position you have, 
in this world is the position of Adam, your first father. Christ came that he would be the second Adam. That he would take the place of what Adam messed up. And you mess up because you are in Adam. And so if you are in Adam, you have a need to be in Christ. And he attests to that with signs and wonders, with healing. The sign of healing. And when they prayed, the place where they were gathered together, where they were assembled, was shaken. And they were filled with the Holy Spirit. Spirit-led prayer is a prayer bent on the phrase, Thy will be done. Confidence in trial, confidence in persecution, confidence in tragedy and in calamity. That when my brother died, I didn't have to wonder why it happened. Number one, that's not my department to know all things. But I have confidence to know, I have faith to know that it wasn't senseless. It wasn't just God allowing things to happen that are evil with absolutely no purpose or no power to stop them. If he doesn't have any power to stop them, there's no sense in me praying that it wouldn't have happened. God, why did you let this happen? You could have stopped it. You could have. But he tells me to have confidence in the fact that he has a reason, he has a purpose, and it's for my good and ultimately his glory. And I would much rather leave the decision of what takes place, of who's saved, of who's not saved, of what tragedies befall who, and what blessings are given to who, to a God who I know is sovereign, who I know is good, than to leave it up to decisions of sinful men who I know are inclined to make bad choices, to do evil things. I hope that we see that today. I hope that we come to grasp, to understand just a little bit of what God has revealed to us by telling us that he hasn't revealed all things to us, by telling us that he is in control and that we have the same response as Job, that when things go wrong or when things go right, when Job says that I spoke without knowledge but his response is to put his hand over his mouth I'm not going to say anymore I've said too much I'm not going to say anymore I'm going to leave it in the hands of God and he fell on his face and worshipped because that's the only place that you're going to find hope that's the only place where it resides is knowing that God is sovereign that he's in control okay let's pray Father God, I thank you for this time that you've given us, God. I ask that your word would go forth, that it would penetrate hearts, that ears are open, God. I ask that you would grant repentance, that you would grant illumination of your text, God. I ask that your word would shine in our hearts, God, that we would know that you are sovereign, that you are glorious, God. Give us faith. Help us to know that you are always faithful. And help us to be faithful in response, God. We thank you for today. We thank you for your word and this time that we've had together, God. I pray that the rest of this time, as we fellowship, would be used to glorify you and to edify 
the saints, God. Thank you when we praise you in your precious son's name. Amen.